Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And it's Dr. Ward here. I'm your sometimes friendly ER doc. Not always friendly? Depends on the mood strikes. Last week or last episode, we covered the Zika virus, which has been making big rounds in the news. And I thought it'd be fun to do another current events episode, mostly because I like using the (laughs) music. Newsflash, newsflash. Yeah. <laughs> so there I was browsing through the current events in medical news looking for something that we could talk about and you know I came across the Flint, Michigan water crisis. Are both of you familiar with the water crisis in Flint? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've read about it. For those of you who aren't, uh, in in short it's this is Flint, Michigan changed its water source from the Detroit Water and Sewage Department water to the Flint River. And as a result, the drinking water had a series of problems that ended up in culminating with lead contamination that created a serious public health hazard. The river from the water from the Flint River was so corrosive that it caused lead from old pipes to leach into the water supply. And this led to not only about six to 12,000 children being exposed to drinking water with high levels of lead, but a possible outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in the county that's killed about 10 people and affected another 77. So we'll, oh. we'll get into a little bit more of the yeah. history for that. Well, since As this is contract, travel medicine, I, you know, this, this is kind of close to our hearts. I mean, we did, all of us, we lived in the Midwest a few years, didn't we? Right. I still do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. I actually have ventured into the clear, what I thought was clear and pristine rivers on the shores of Waukegan, Illinois. And if I looked up, there were smokestacks right there on the industrial northern Illinois waterfront. But nevertheless, it was, it was actually a delightful, it was a delightful lake. 
So, Santosh, we're going to end up calling on you a lot during this episode because certainly lead poisoning most seriously affects children. But before we do, I thought it would be interesting to contrast this Flint water crisis. You know, Flint is not the first time a civilization has been threatened by lead poisoning. Right. And And it's certainly not the only city being threatened right now with toxic water. Sure, sure. And in fact, this is a problem keeping the drinking water clean that a lot of people don't think about, but actually dates back all the way to the Roman Empire. And there's actually a 1983 article from the New England Journal of Medicine written by a geochemist, which sounds like the best Harry Potter major (laughs) ever. Geomancer? Sure. Yes. Uh, But an article that opens up a, that posits the argument that lead poisoning was responsible in part for the decline of the Roman Empire. Oh, and okay. <laughs> this, right? Not right. where you thought this was going to go. <laughs> was it Was because it, it was too heavy and then the empire <laughs> fell? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, no, it's, it actually was because... The Romans used to store their wine in lead vessels. So most of their, you would think it'd be the aqueducts, but the aqueducts were actually made of clay because even back then, the Romans knew that using lead in their drinking water was not safe. Because even back then, the writings of Pliny the Elder, famous Roman historian, noted that it was better to have water in clay aqueducts than lead ones because it would poison the water. But they stored their wine in lead-drinking vessels, and since all the aristocracy drank about two to three liters of wine per day, it's felt that all the ruling class was suffering insanity, was suffering stomach problems, was suffering infertility, and left without leadership or deteriorating leadership, it began to fall into decline. So I thought it was a nice contrast that in ancient Rome, the rich were suffering and the ones who were healthy were the poor because they couldn't afford wine and had to drink peasant water. And now you flip it over on the other end and all the people drinking the peasant water are the ones getting sick and only the rich people who drink their pure, bottled from cleaner taps, Evian are the ones without any problems. Uh, life is unfair again, as it should be. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, like, wait a minute, yeah. two, two liters of wine a day? That's a lot. See, now, that's... when I read that, I was like, you know, it's probably alcoholism, not lead, that's killing the See, Romans. There was a lot of alcoholism back then. But you, I, I was talking with Santosh about this before, is that the Romans used to dilute their wine. Remember, they were drinking right. this for every meal, so and they, they would dilute they would it significantly. It. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the lead, and of course, Josh, as you love the etymology of lead, uh, of course, the you look at the periodic table of elements, and the two-letter symbol for lead is PB, which looks nothing like lead. So it comes from plumbum which is the Latin word, and plumbum was the lead element because that was the metal that was used in there, plumbing. And that's where our word plumbing comes from. So our plumbing previously, all the way back to the Roman Empire, was all made with lead because it was the most malleable yet 
strong metal you could use to siphon water from one place to another. And uh, thankfully it is, or at least it should not be in our plumbing anymore. <laughs> but that's where the PB symbol for lead comes from. Correct. And as long as we're going to have fun with etymology, Hit it. lead poisoning has had a number of names over the years, including, as you noted, plumism. Sure. <laughs> Colica pictorum, which is from a city in Rome, colic of Pitos. Painter's colic, because as we know, there were a lot of lead-based paints. Mm -hmm. But one of my personal favorites was Saturnism or Saturnine gout. Oh. Are you have you ever heard of this term or heard somebody described oh. as Saturnistic? I no. I don't think so. Really? Because I feel like it comes up in everyday conversation. <laughs> I feel like that's gone out of style since <laughs> since the discovery of Pluto and then re-subscription of Pluto into uh, uh, like whatever. <laughs> well, interestingly, Ward, you are spot on in in your reasoning that it has gone out of fashion. So at the time, one of the earliest names for lead poisoning was Saturnine gout. And if you hear something described as Saturnine, it usually means gloomy or sluggish or slow-moving or morose and literally translates to born under the influence of the planet Saturn. <laughs> so back in Roman and medieval times, it was believed that these characteristics were caused by the astrological influence of the planet Saturn, which was the most remote from the sun at the knowledge of the time, and thus the coldest and slowest in its revolution. Very cool. So wow. somebody who was suffering from lead poisoning would be very slow-moving and very morose and not quite all there, so they were believed to be under the influence of the furthest planet from the sun. So there you go, a little bit of <laughs> astrology, astronomy, and etymology. Hey, I love it. Um, so before we get into the symptoms, I, I have to just, again, comment on this whole Flint issue with a couple things that, as I was doing the research for this episode, frankly surprised and horrified me. Hmm. So, as I mentioned... The main reason that led to the water from the Flint River being corroded and poisoned is that the lead pipes were corroded and leached lead into the water supply. So you might wonder, how do lead pipes become corroded? Well, Ward, here's something that you can definitely appreciate because you and I both lived in cold winter areas, you in New York, me in Chicago. <laughs> and when you use road salt during winter... Ooh, and me in Iowa... So when you use road salt, when it finally melts and runs off, you raise chloride levels in surrounding lakes and rivers. And if you raise chloride levels in these areas, the chloride goes in and corrodes the lead pipes that run to older homes. So the more heavy a winter you have, the more you salt the roads, the more chlorine gets into the water and then into the pipe supply, and the more the pipes break down. So one bad winter could release a lot of poisoning versus a drought that may not release as much, or places like California that don't really have to deal with any of this. Wow. I, how, no. does, how does chloride get into the water from Be snowy roads? Because road salt is, as sodium we all know, NaCl, <laughs> sodium chloride, ah, and it breaks down into its ionic form or its component particles once it gets in. So you get snow melt, that water 
seeps into the ground and takes all of it with it. Now, one of the other things is, in case you're wondering, you know, we don't use lead water pipes. This is not a new problem. So, lead, Congress banned lead pipes over 30 years ago, but it's really difficult to replace about 10 million foot, feet footing. This is why we went into medicine, people. English is very hard for us. Please give us a break. So Congress banned water pipes, but there's somewhere between 5 and 10 million feet of old pipes that remain, and they can start leaching lead just by being jostled during repairs or through a change in water chemistry such as a sudden drought in one part of the country or a harsh winter in another. Now, the one that was most disturbing to me is you would think, all right, well, we, this is why we have the EPA. And the EPA has a trigger level for addressing lead in drinking water, and that is set at 15 parts per billion. Now, Santosh Ward, if you had to take a guess, why do you think they set it at 15 parts per billion in the drinking water? And that's parts per billion, correct? Not parts per million. Yeah, I, that is correct. The parts government works in mysterious ways. I have. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you it's not solely based based on toxicity. Well, I would I would hope it's you know it, it's based off of the amount of exposure that it would take to hurt somebody. So I I would hope that they would set it where you know if if you rose above that in the water or in the environment, then it would start to accumulate in people and cause toxicity. Is that the truth? You would be very disappointed. Oh. <laughs> that trigger level for the EPA addressing lead. Now, remember, this is not, you know, the EPA saying you have to do This is, here's the level at which we're actually going to claim we're responsible for doing something. Sure. Is 15 parts per billion, and it is not based on any health threat. Okay. It instead reflects an arbitrary calculation that water in at least 9 in 10 homes susceptible to lead contamination will fall below that standard. So it's like the old 9 out of 10 dentist story. Oh, no. If we set it at, if we set it at this level, we're only going to find a number that makes us responsible in <laughs> 1 out of 10 homes. And that home is probably a dentist, and he's the one recommending that you don't brush your teeth with Crest. I'm going to say it's just like Crest. <laughs> oh, dear. So, and I believe, so Josh, that that monitoring is actually done from the source water. Is that correct? It's not actually monitored in homes. So correct. when the EPA, for instance, tested, they'll go to a water disbursement facility in the center of a city, but they won't go to individual faucets at people's houses. No, because that simply would be impractical. And that, but I believe that was actually part of the problem because the pipes leading to the houses were being corroded and right. leaching into the uh, water system. Yeah. So, so they actually that is, thought they were fine, but that was the lead level that was at the source, not at the tap. Right. So basically, when you know you're being told, well, 15 parts per billion is safe. It's no. It's 15 parts per billion is we're going to be responsible for you know the one in ten home that we think this could show up in. So they could have just set a lower number and they're like, eh, you know, might be a health threat, might not, we don't know. But let's get into this. So, Ward, have you ever seen any lead poisoning cases? No, I have not. I Now, keep in mind, nowadays, 
I work and practice in sunny California, where you'd be hard-pressed to find a house older than 30 years. Lead pipes and lead paint and lead poisoning is less prevalent out here. See, I thought you might have come across it when you worked in New York. In Chicago, yes. In New York, um, not as much. So what did you see in Chicago? In Chicago, when I, when I practiced, when I was going to medical school with you guys in Chicago, there were actually a lot of old houses still had 30-year-old paints in them, and there were stories of children eating lead paint chips and getting lead poisoning and, and ending up with the old-school findings of lead poisoning at their pediatrician's office. Like right. lead lines in, your, in their x-rays and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, let's go into this. So, Santosh, you have the most experience, not necessarily having seen a case, but this, this is something that is really considered to be more of a pediatric at-risk issue. What are the symptoms of lead poisoning? Early on, there may actually be nothing. When you're talking about the, the levels of lead where we have cutoffs, um, you know, we'll we'll start with, you know, just behavioral problems. So someone will say that, oh, you know, kind of at the outset, they're asymptomatic. They've been there's a mild or a small amount of lead. So this is talking about a little bit more than five micrograms per deciliter of blood. And this kind of chronic lead poisoning, people will say there might be behavioral problems or the kid might even be acting out or having trouble at school. So we do have universal lead screening in place for kids who are a year old and then two years old. And then we have questions that we ask at every visit that have to do with the child's environment to see if we have to screen more frequently in the blood. And sometimes if we hear from the mom that, you know, my kid is emotionally labile, meaning that they're happy and then they're crying. They have ADD or ADD type symptoms and there's no family history of that or it it happened uh, suddenly or gradually, whereas before this kid was not so hyperactive. The kid has anxiety um, or there's delay in development, any of these things at lower lead levels, so 5 to 10 micrograms per deciliter uh, or a little bit above that, they'll have this cognitive behavioral problems. As we start to escalate, we see anemia, problems in the blood where the child almost looks like they have malnutrition and they're not making the right number of red blood cells. And if that blood lead level jumps up really high. So if it goes all the way up to over 70 micrograms per deciliter, they'll actually have a hemolytic anemia, which means the red blood cells will actually burst because of the presence of lead in the blood. So we we have hematologic problems. We have problems in the brain. You can have kidney problems as well after prolonged exposures. You can have a lead colic so vomiting, abdominal pain, constipation, and this hovers at around 60 micrograms per deciliter. And finally, as you mentioned, Ward, lead accumulates in mineralizing tissues. And this is the nails, bones, especially the growth plates and the teeth. Our vitamin D levels drop, and you can have problems with hair, teeth, nails, and bone. And bone and growth plate means that they can have problems with growth.
So we strive to diagnose these kids as early as possible. You know, nothing higher than five micrograms per deciliter here in the United States, and we act on that right away. Ward, I don't know if you've seen the acute encephalopathy. So when lead levels jump very quickly, very high above 70 micrograms per deciliter, in the emergency room, if you're suspecting lead toxicity, what does the either the kid or the adult, what do they look like to you? By the time you get to encephalopathy, that really is a true emergency. That's kind of nearing the end of lead poisoning. Fortunately or unfortunately, I've, I've never seen a case of that in the in a California emergency room. And we are supposed to be trained to diagnose it. On the other hand, by the time your brain swells, it means all your nervous system is shot. Sometimes that diagnosis comes at the end of excluding all the other causes of encephalopathy. I've actually had a patient, an adult patient, who came in with lead poisoning. And, you know, this is one that it was early on in my career and close enough to my studying for boards that I was able to pick it up mostly because the guy might as well have come straight out of a textbook. Oh wow, okay. So what was he like? So this was an adult male gentleman who originally just came in with some abdominal pain and fatigue. You know, he hadn't been feeling like himself lately. He he wasn't unable to walk. He just didn't seem like he had a lot of energy. He had more aches and pains. He had had trouble sleeping. Now, he denied being depressed, but he said he hadn't. He also hadn't really had any interest or as much interest in sex. So a decreased libido, some fatigue. He had constipation. And he just finally, when he started getting this abdominal pain, he's like, I really need to go be checked out. Now, this is not really anything specific right right this is, this is just know? a conglomeration of oh man this guy is just down i i can see how this can be easily dismissed as oh depressed dude who's you know just having a bunch of somatizations now this is part of the reason that we're trained to take histories you know as i'm going through and i'm asking him about his past history and nothing's coming up and his surgical history and socially and does he smoke does he drink and you know he says yeah he does drink occasionally on weekends mostly beer um hadn't had anything in a while and he said he really he had kind of stopped drinking lately because he just had noticed an unusual taste in his mouth whenever he drank and he wasn't really able to quantify he's like it's not metallic but things just taste different and then we started talking about his job because you know I had that bit of information but I didn't know what to do with it sure. yet and then he said you know he worked mostly odd jobs he worked primarily in landscaping but he also did a lot of painting and construction over the summers dun, and that and you know hearing the combination for me of hearing an unusual taste in the mouth along with a gentleman who worked as a painter and was coming in with abdominal pain is what finally clued me in for that, you know, house MD moment to be like, I wonder if he has this going on. So, you know, again, this is, I, and I go over this over and over again, and this is part of why I'm so interested in words and stories, because you would never think to look for it without taking the history. The amount of lead that you'll see in the blood and tissues as well as the time course of exposure, really determine toxicity. And poisoning by lead compounds 
predominantly affects the central nervous system. So you'll see insomnia, you'll see slowed thinking, you'll see tremor, you'll see hallucinations and convulsions, whereas inorganic or lead sources without carbon usually affect people more peripherally. Acrylic paint, especially, is, is yeah, definitely... Yeah, Now, acrylic yeah. paint is what caused the scare in 2007 when all the toys and things we were importing from China right. were found to have lead in them. Yeah. That's right. So ordinarily, though, organic lead is much more rare to be poisoned by, and normally it's inorganic, and that affects you peripherally, and that would be the kind of poisoning that most people would be getting in the Flint, Michigan situation, is inorganic peripheral lead poisoning. In adults, symptoms usually don't occur until you hit levels above 40 micrograms per deciliter, and that's how we measure lead, is in micrograms per deciliter. So what... What does that mean in real time, Santosh? Like, is that a, sh a tenth of a shot? Is it, um, is it like a thimbleful to a bathtub? How much is that realistically? When we're talking about micrograms per deciliter of blood, so... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, a deciliter is a, is a tenth of a liter. We all as adults have anywhere between six to seven to sometimes nine liters of blood. So, my, but micrograms is trace, trace, tiny amounts. You know, you're, you're talking about something that wouldn't fill anything, I would say more than a thimble or maybe a, maybe a large thimble. So even even the most severe intoxications, which get above 70 micrograms per deciliter, if you take every deciliter of blood and try to get out 70 micrograms and you put 70 micrograms on a scale, it's going to look like a teeny pie, tiny pile of dust. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if, if you were to empty a human body of... If you were to empty a human body of all its blood, right. you'd be a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it, let's say you filled a bathtub, and then you could achieve lead poisoning by just tipping a thimbleful of lead into that bathtub. So right. these are these are the amounts. It really doesn't take a lot. Mm -hmm. So symptoms. Here's kind of the symptom breakdown that we see, and you know nobody, and I mean not anyone, not even House MD or I don't know some other famous TV doctor is going to be able to pick up on, oh, they've got this symptom, they must have this amount of blood. But scientists do, apparently. <laughs> so beginning around 25 to 40 micrograms, you'll see some delayed reaction times, irritability, 
and difficulty concentrating, and this is due to slowed motor nerve conduction. Above 40 micrograms, so now we're talking, you know, just under half a thimble, you'll start to see changes to sperm count and libido. So the sperm count is reduced and you get changes in volume and motility. Once you hit 50 or half the thimble, anemia can start to appear. Over 70, you'll see signs of encephalopathy in children, but not in adults. You'll just see, again, you know, the same, same anemia, same slowness of movement. Above 80, which is now that thimble's almost full, you'll see abdominal pain. And greater than 100, which we'll call a full thimble in the bathtub, you'll see nerve damage causing wrist drop and foot drop, coma, seizures, and headache. Along the way, you can also notice blood in the urine because of this hemolysis or breaking or bursting of blood cells Santosh talked about and the associated damage in kidneys. So this is kind of your breakdown bit by bit. Now, I believe in Flint, very few of the people experienced anything more than abdominal pain. A few of them had mental... Uh, slowing and well, cognitive issues. That's kind of part of why lead poisoning is so hard to diagnose. Now, you were talking about the man you were speaking about, I think, had chronic lead poisoning and not acute encephalopathy, right? Correct. And the, in, the symptoms we mentioned, insomnia, depression, diarrhea, constipation, feeling off, libido issues... They can happen to anyone who's depressed or having a bad time. You know, I lived in the Midwest. I love it. But in a, in a hard, long Midwestern winter, I could feel four or five of those symptoms. You know what I mean? Well, that's kind of why chronic lead poisoning is not the easiest. It's not the easiest diagnosis to pick up clinically. And, you know, I, exactly. I might have said, hey, you know what? Honey, you live in Flint. I <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, not to anything, you know? <laughs> yeah. And this is why, actually, the American Academy of Pediatrics, as far as children were concerned, there was a rush and to establish guidelines to diagnose children with screening with lead levels all the way down to 5 micrograms per deciliter. So teeny tiny amounts. And by the way, if anybody out there listening needs a reference, take a, a normal size paper clip and put it down. That is 1 gram, all right? That is 1,000 milligrams, all right? And that is 1,000, 1,000 micrograms. So it's 10 to the 6th micrograms um in in that paper clip so that's that's what a you know what we're talking about with micrograms per deciliter so we want to find in terms of children and making sure that their cognitive development is not hurt their growth is not hurt we have developed testing and universal screening so we can take action even when we detect five micrograms per deciliter in a kid so how do we detect it? What's what's done? Right, so you can actually get this as a routine blood test. So our, our children who go through screening tests, the first thing we do is ask questions, so to take a good history. And the questions that are adapted from the CDC to assess. So the first thing we say is, 
does the child live in a house or regularly visit a house or live in a childcare facility that was built before <laughs> 1950? <laughs> does the child regularly visit a house? Yeah. <laughs> so basically, if, uh, you know, if, if you're going to grandma's house and it was built before 1950. Much like grandma. Much like grandma. Um, is there any house that they live, either they live in a house or they visit, which was built before 1978. And this is looking for lead in the pipes and lead in the paint. Um, and then is there anyone around well, if them? You if you haven't repainted the house since 1978... No, 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 but there yeah. are people who live in older houses and, no, no, and certainly no. know out in the Midwest. I mean, right. you know, there... And again, even if you're repainting the house ward, you're probably not changing the pipes. Right. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, nobody, even if you get an old house and, you know, and, and we're thinking about, you know, where I lived out in Iowa, maybe an old farmhouse, and someone would just, you know, put it out there. And then... There are additions to these questions. And then finally you say, is there anybody around the child who's had lead poisoning? A brother, sister, playmate, anything like that? Because if there is, these are environmental issues. So if mom or dad tells me, for instance, oh yes, you know, so-and-so's friend who also attends class with them happened to have lead poisoning. And in that case, you have to think about, oh, are they also playing in the same environment where they get the lead poisoning? We also have adapted questions which are based on where the person lives. So, for instance, if we have a high immigrant population, especially from south of the border, Mexico, Central, and South America, we ask any adoptees all the way down to six months of age, all the way up to 16 years of age, if they were adopted from South America, Central America, Mexico. If the house uses pottery or ceramic vessels for cooking, eating, drinking, if they live close to a freeway, that's another source of lead poisoning. So there's a usually for the area that you live, there is a series of questions which we ask at our six-month visits, our nine-month visits, at, at intervals when the child comes in for their well-child check. And if any of these come up positive, we screen them for lead by drawing blood and checking the level of lead in the blood. Universally, regardless of the answer to those questions, pretty much every pediatrician will add a lead screen at age 12 months and age 24 months. Also, if we find anything in the history which has anything to do with all of the things that Josh just talked about, so problems with behavior, neurological issues, we also look for anything having to do with hearing loss, because hearing loss can be a, um, a sometimes sign of lead poisoning in children. Now, I believe, Santos, you mentioned before that when we're recording blood lead levels, they only indicate how much lead is circulating in the bloodstream, not the total amount stored in the body. Correct, yeah. So if the child has been suffering from chronic lead poisoning and it's picked up late, uh, lead will stay in the bones for what was, we said, uh, 25 years, I believe. Is that right, Josh? Or that more. is right. That's yeah. The half-life of lead in bone is 20 to 30 years, Right. and it can't and as bone is broken down, it can be introduced into the bloodstream long after the initial exposure is gone. Right. That's now, in the long, blood... That's a long lifetime, yeah. by the way. <laughs> like, I, Benadryl, for example, the half time is like three hours. Yeah. Just to put it into context. <laughs> good, now, good that's in the bone. 
That's in the bone. The half-life of lead in the blood is about 40 days, but it may be longer in children and pregnant women because their bones are undergoing remodeling, which allows lead to be continuously reintroduced to the bloodstream. That's actually not unique in toxicology. In fact, I think, I don't know if you guys have heard of, about how marijuana is, or metabolites of marijuana is stored in fat. So sometimes mm-hmm. when you accumulate it while you're gaining weight, when you lose weight, that marijuana metabolite gets re-metabolized and you don't necessarily get high again, but it'll turn up in your um, drug toxicity screen. So you're telling me if I lose all the weight I gained back in college, I might still get high? You might still (laughs) be in a good mood. (laughs) That's why it feels so good to lose weight. There you go. go. (laughs) Now, Ward, you mentioned earlier... Burton lines. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what those are? I, I think you're referring to the lead lines in growth plates, right? right. Well, yeah, x-rays. so there's bone and gum. So there's the lead lines and x-rays, and then if it's along the gums, it's a blue line with like a bluish-black edging to the teeth known as a Burton line, oh, and which is also chronic. Lining. Yeah. Right. These are, you know, I, I have a feeling that um, the X-ray lines and the Burton lines are of a clinical finding of classical, like old-timer diagnosticians. We don't see that many Burton lines or lead lines on X-rays anymore. You know, again, let's say somebody's coming in and they have very non-specific symptoms, and you're getting an X-ray and you pick up on one of these things totally incidentally. So these are clues that could tell you to do that blood test. On the other hand. Um, Josh, I don't know if you or Santosh have ever seen anything else that can cause blue teeth. <laughs> I, I can't. I, I can't think of another. I can't. I can't really think of another thing. So, if, uh, yeah. do you remember what was that candy that it would turn your tongue and teeth blue if uh, you ate it? Or no. 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 It was like a fruit by the foot type. Oh, oh, it was, uh, yeah, yeah, um, tape, something tape, not bubble tape. Yeah. Yeah, 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 one of those, one of those. So I guess there you have it. Your choice is either lead poisoning or 1980s candy. Yeah. Let's move on briefly. So, okay, so let's say now we have an idea of kind of what all these kids in Flint may have been subject to. How do you treat this? And, you know, did we talk about the difference between acute and chronic lead poisoning? I know we've covered a lot of chronic. Ward, what do you see in acute lead poisoning? I think in acute lead poisoning, that that is a true medical emergency. Um, not only do they have the hemolytic anemia and um, anemia of probably of chronic disease that chronic lead poisoning uh, patients have, they also have, I mean, this is, lead is, neurotoxic. So it poisons your nerves and your your biggest nerve in your body, well, is your brain. So they would come in encephalopathic and some of them have electrolyte disturbances. So they would come in acidemic and with um, their blood is actually too acidic. And these are people who are, those are people who are sick, sick. And um like I was saying earlier, the diagnosis might not come right away because these tests, the definitive test is actually a lead level. And that might not come back in the first couple of hours. So you kind of have to stabilize the patient first and then treat them immediately with chelating agents to get that lead out of their system. 
Now, I'm going to just, Santosh, I know you're our group scientist, but I'm briefly just going to explain that a chelating agent is any molecule mm -hmm. with at least two negatively charged groups that lets it form complexes with the metal ions. So this way it forms a non-toxic compound that can be excreted in urine at up to 50 times the normal rate. Right. So essentially, the properties of the metal allow it to kind of stick around. So when you take an agent that can chelate a metal, what happens is that metal gets bound up in such a way that it can be, in this case, I think, peed out, right? And, and Correct. excreted right, right. through the kidneys, right? And so <laughs> I love that just because it causes a mental image of like some kid goes to pee and all of a sudden you hear, Clink! <laughs> tink, 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 tink. Did we get them all? Which we is, got them all. Which is not what happens at all. Like, no. you, cannot you do not pee out a number two pencil. <laughs> no, no. Lord, and, I'm so glad you said that. Number two pencils never had lead. Right. I, yeah, and I we'll, know. No, nowadays we'll they don't, right? And we, they never did, they never but we'll, did, we'll get yeah. to that. We'll get to that. So, Santosh, yeah, you, start, you don't actually you know, urinate out Civil War bullets, <laughs> but I like the mental image. Right, right. So you you actually uh, just you, – you, the, the urine might be slightly cloudy or something like that from the, from the, the complexed chelating agent and metal, but that's about it. You, you won't see chunks of anything dropping out of your bladder. Because that would be terrifying. <laughs> Right, And, you know, maybe on the future episode, we'll talk about all the colors of the Skittles rainbow that you can turn your urine with different drugs. Oh, sure. But, Ward, I was actually going to save this as our trivia for the end of the episode, and, and you beat me to it. But I was going to ask, true or false, can you get lead poisoning if you're stuck with a lead pencil? And, I'm gonna, of course, I'm gonna guess, you know... Uh, I'm going to guess no. Well, you buried the lead there, because lead pencils have never been made with lead. They contain graphite, which is a form of carbon. It's what diamonds turn into after they have decomposed over millennia. Right, right. So basically, you could be writing with somebody's decomposed engagement ring. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day! <laughs> Dreams shattered. I got you a package of pencils! <laughs> we've been together right. so long it's our pencil anniversary already <laughs> but no the reason that we always thought pencils had lead and that you know this has been something that's been harped on is back in the 1500s there was this huge deposit of graphite discovered in a town in england called cumbia and at the time of this discovery pencils weren't made the same way they are today. They were they were blocks of graphite that were just sawed into sticks, so there was no wood around it. They looked kind of like fat black crayons minus the label. And the tips were sharpened with knives the way people, you know, whittle. Santosh, I'm sure you're familiar with whittling. You grew up in Iowa. Ah, so mean. But so mean. Because, <laughs> because chemistry was a very young science at this time, people thought graphite was a form of lead because they shared that same kind of color, and that's why the name was given to pencils. And in the early 1600s, gra these rods of graphite were placed inside wood sleeves that were glued together, and that made pencils easier to use. So the number two pencil 
is basically a company thing. I'm so excited. I got to do etymology, history, and trivia today. <laughs> this, as far as I'm concerned, this episode is a rousing success. <laughs> but that pretty much covers everything that you need to know about lead. What I can tell you is if you live in one of these Midwestern states and you have a concern, you should check your pipes and, you know, see when they were last done. A good rule of thumb, especially given the new Star Wars movie that came out, is if your house is older than the original Star Wars trilogy, you might have lead pipes. Right. If it's not, and you're just concerned about the components that are in your water, and this 15 parts per million, if you're that one dentist who, does, <laughs> who thinks the EPA might be trying to poison him, then... You could just get yourself any water filter because lead is a pretty large ion, the lead that's leaching out. And any water filter should clear it and prevent it. So as long as you're drinking filtered water, it doesn't have to be bottled. You can still have from the tap. I wonder what the other dentist recommends, just like a piece of gum, <laughs> some water, and that's it. Well, this is the this is the dentist that it doesn't agree with the other nine. You know, nine that's out right. of ten dentists are telling you to brush your teeth. This is the dentist that's saying, no, no eat all the candy yeah. you want. Yeah. Right. Um, a while back, we used to worry about iron, but even now, uh, it's you know we actually worry about iron deficiency more than than iron overload. Right so, now, here in California, where Santosh and I both practice, I think the water source. It's rare to get a heavy metal poisoning from just the water source. Now, on the other hand, when I say San Francisco, you guys think of... Uh, I don't think uh, I can say it on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was going to say something PG, like the 49ers, because... Sure, let's go with that. Let's go with that. The <laughs> non-sexual, non-PG-13 49ers. And that was because of the gold rush. And we are we actually have a wealth of minerals out here on the west coast and one of the minerals was gold that's what you know caused the gold rush and everybody come out here to the uh west coast in um 79 but the other one the big one being mercury we actually have a lot of mercury mines um here on the west coast and there is that mercury is leaching into the water but that tends to accumulate in fish and plants and you know zooplankton so it's hard to get mercury poisoning unless you eat the fish that concentrates the, the mercury out here. Sure. And certain kinds of fish have a higher likelihood of picking up mercury, correct? That's right. Well, you know, the fish, they all build up mercury, but fish that eat fish, that's like a double accumulation. So predators like sharks, tunas, you know, they, they tend to accumulate a little bit more. Did you just say a tuna was a predator in the same <laughs> class as a shark? <laughs> well, tunas are predators. They they are fish-eating fish. And that's what I mean by when you... It's a double, double accumulation. So right. short-lived fish that eat, only eat plankton and die in a year or so do not accumulate the same level of mercury that long-living predators like tuna, like sharks, do. Right. Do you know why mercury is called quicksilver? Well, it's rather quick. <laughs> As so, if you, uh, I mean, yeah, if you so happen to, oh, you know, move it around with your finger, uh, I, I hope you never do. But um, I remember as a kid. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I did this, but we had a mercury thermometer. It broke, and we actually, you know, you just 
move it around a little bit with your finger, and it just it's it moves around. Shup, 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 and uh, yeah. yeah, we had a very different childhood, Santos. You and I from kids from today. Like <laughs> we we got to play with Quicksilver as children, and it's because it was silver. Right. To to the standard eye, it's silver that appeared as a liquid at room temperature. Right. How fun. So, no. Yeah. Right. No. No. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> Kids, do not play with old thermometers. Yes. Yeah. yeah, please, yeah. Um, but that brings to an end our episode on heavy metals, and hopefully you're all now more informed and updated about current events. So join us next time when, hopefully, we will have the next episode of our radio drama available in which Dr. Ward and a few other special guests appear. And I promise that the production value will be a vast improvement over the initial one because, hey, when you teach yourself how to edit, there's going to be some missteps along the way. Right. <laughs> that said, as always, guys, we love to hear from you. We welcome your feedback, your questions, your concerns, and your comments. You can reach us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Santosh is at Toshifro. Ward is at Travel N Medicine, just the single letter. You can always leave us comments on our Facebook page, of which the link is in the show notes, and any other place you can find. If you like the show, Rate us, review us. That's how other people find us. We are on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're wherever podcasts are found and downloaded. And I've remembered to upload it. <laughs> Our music is composed by Rachel Leisure. We have no sponsors. We are free. We always will be. <laughs> but hopefully you're enjoying this. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Happy travels. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.